and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys, so, uh, boy, so many things going on. Uh, so much learning going on here, by the way, a lot. There's, you, anyway, there's going to be a lot of stuff on, uh, on things I have been reading about, covering, learning about. It's been, really, it's been really something, and it's really affecting the way that I've been viewing and talking about Scientology, as I'm sure you guys have noticed. Um, so a couple things. First thing is next week is the 200th episode of my Critical Q&A show. Uh, which is pretty awesome. Um, I mean, I just, I, you know, like I said, when I, when I've, as I've said before, when I started doing this, I had no idea that this was going to keep going week after week after week like this, uh, with you guys continuing to ask the most amazing and wonderful questions that have really provoked a lot of thought on my part and have actually helped me, just so you know, along the way uh, to clarify and understand where my own head has been at uh, in answering these questions uh, and seeing the progress of recovery from Scientology uh, and all the rest through how my answers have changed over the years, too. So anyway, uh, I can't just do just a regular show for the 200th episode. So, um, you know, this is just being a solo operation. I don't have the dancing girls or the, you know, the, the, the screaming music or anything, but we will do... Me and uh, my wife, Melissa, will be here to join me, and maybe Seven will make a special appearance at Seven the Wondercat. Uh, and we're going to do an hour-long live Q&A next weekend. So mark your calendars. I'm giving you a heads up now. Usually I just throw something up on Twitter, uh, but I'm not even on social media right now. But I'll probably go on there to throw this up um, because I, need, I want people to know Next Sunday, 10 o'clock a.m. my time, which is Mountain Standard Time, Denver time here in the United States, uh, we will be on uh, live streaming right here. So uh, this will be a chance to comment away and uh, give us your questions live. All right, so now for this week, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Nick C. The other day, I was catching up on current events around Scientology, Scientology Money Project, the Underground Bunker, etc., and somewhere along the line found a reference to you being contacted by someone, supposedly in Australia, asking you all sorts of questions about the recent stabbing murder inside a Scientology org there. I am assuming it was a fishing expedition by Scientology, but I wonder what it was they were fishing for. What was their best case expectation, assuming you went along with the con? Any speculations? It's so out of left field that I am straining to understand why they would think to use this kind of ruse in general and on you specifically. Thanks for the question, Nick. So as I think probably most viewers of this show know, there was a uh, stabbing murder of a uh, person in Australia, at a Scientology organization, apparently um, they were two security guard type people. One of them got stabbed and killed. The other one got stabbed. The, the, the kid who did it, is, and kid, I mean a young, I, I, I don't know his exact age, but he was the son of a Scientology parishioner there at the organization. I think she was in there doing her purification rundown, so she was sitting in the sauna and he wanted to go see her and they weren't going to let her and something ensued and people ended up dying. Uh, tragic, absolutely tragic, and uh, I didn't particularly comment on it on the time. I wasn't asked any questions about it particularly. 
Um, but just to be, you know, super clear, like I always am on this sort of thing, I in no way, shape, or form thought that that was at all cool, acceptable, wonderful, good. It was none of those things. It was awful, tragic, and horrible. And I really, really wish it hadn't happened. Um, but it did. And on the heels of that incident happening in Australia, nothing to do with me, nothing to do with anything, uh, I got an email. And the email ostensibly was from a reporter. It was coming to my askchrisshelton at gmail.com <laughs> email address. And uh, it was asking me um, about the incident. It was asking me about who I had been in touch with about it. It was saying that I was being investigated. I, my name was coming up in connection with the investigation. Uh, had asked me if I had been co if I had contacted any barristers on my own half on my own behalf. So, the whole tone and attitude of the email was: I'm now the subject of an investigation in Australia over this incident, and who have I been in touch with? Has anybody else? You know, what did did this person who was uh, who had committed the murder, did he contact me? Did it have, was he a commenter on my channel? I mean, there was these kinds of, of questions. And of course, this disturbed me greatly. Uh, and that, I think, is what Scientology intended to do. There is no reason for me to imagine that this email came from anywhere other than the Church of Scientology via some proxy. I can't think of any reason that anyone would have to send me an email like that if phishing, clearly phishing for information about me and any connection I might have to this person or anything having to do with the case. Um, I just can't imagine why anybody else would take the time and effort to, uh, to do that. Uh, and of course, I, you know, we've had this email looked into and, and investigated and stuff, uh, which means that somebody who was going to do this for real would, you know, be somebody who would want to cover their tracks, which is what Scientology does when they send me emails. They've done it before. So I thought, well, all right. So I, you know, took some various measures, talked to some people about this and went, whoa, yeah, okay. This is probably from Scientology. This isn't real. My name did not come up in connection with the investigation. That was a total lie. I had nothing to do with it. So um, I then just ignored it, right? But then I sent it to Tony Ortega and he published it on his blog uh, and that's how it came out. I think that what Scientology is really good at, with former Sea Org members especially, is uh, altitude and authority and trying to scare the, the hell out of them, which is what the, what the first intention of that email was. And for, you know, a few seconds, they succeeded until I realized what was going on. Um, and then, you know, I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think that OSA has a very high opinion of me. Not just because I'm a Scientology critic, but because I was a low-level or mid-level mid Sea Org member, right? I, I was uh, at management of Scientology continentally, uh, which in Scientology management is mid-level. And uh, I was never really in David Miscavige's vicinity. I mean, I, I met the guy like three times in person, but I don't mean I would ever worked around him, with him, on his lines. I was never, you know, he doesn't really know me or know much about me. Uh, so I'm not important. <laughs> and so I'm a low totem pole guy 
in OSA's big framework of how things are. But let me tell you a little bit about OSA and how they go about doing investigations because this kind of a fishing expedition is an effort on their part to get my connections, my info, who am I connected with? And they are really big on connections. They want to know who's talking to who and what are they saying. They want to know the whole network. They actually have special software that they've written in-house to be able to put together charts of connections and show graphically who, you know, here's Joe and he's connected to Sally and Sue and Mary and Bill and Frank and then Frank is connected to him but he's also connected to this and this and this and so you have all these like this web literally of connections and they, they use this to try to track down who the SPs are. They don't think necessarily that all of us are raging psychotic potential murderers. They know that we're, you know, that we're not all technically suppressive people. And I say, I mean, we're declared suppressive people, but as I've explained before in Scientology, a suppressive person's a technical condition. It's a state of being that a person is in, Hubbard says, that makes them psychotic and potentially murderous, certainly criminal, and not trustworthy and not, you know, and somebody you absolutely don't want to be around and who's not going to respond to any efforts to help them. That's a key part of the um, technical definition of a suppressive person. So they know we're not all those things, but they've labeled us suppressive people to get us off the church's lines and make sure we're not connected with anybody who's in the church. But if we are, or if there are people out there who are critical of Scientology, they want to know what the network is. They want to know who's friends with who and all that. Okay, so that email was an effort to get me talking about my connections. And anything they can ever do to see who the connections are, which is why us critics on social media, you know, actually kind of help them with that because we, you know, they, if, you, they, if they can get access to our friends list, then they put it into their computer program and then they have that web of connections. And they, um, they think this is, you know, really super important and in some aspects of an investigation it would be. Uh, and that's what they call it and that's what they think they're doing is they're investigating us and finding, you know, the real evil people who are really trying to take down Scientology. I mean, these are people who actually, you know, believe that, <laughs> that Anonymous, when they were doing their protests back in 2008, were being paid by Big Pharma. So they, you know, wanted to, they would, they'd be very interested in establishing exactly who in Big Pharma was the connection, right? Uh, but they just sort of, you know, make this stuff up. Um, but they do believe in these policies that tell them that this is important stuff and this is how you should conduct an investigation and this is how you find out who the ultimate bad guys are. And, you know, a broken clock works twice a day, right? Uh, as my friend Dylan was saying in the podcast yesterday. So... Uh, OSA can, you know, stumble into finding the right bad guy, uh, you know, as uh, through these means, uh, or sometimes they get lucky and they get a break or whatever and they find their, the target of their investigation. So anyway, I just wanted to give a little bit of information about that in response to this question. Nick, thanks for asking me about that and I hope that was illuminating. Isabel Morin, I just listened to your Sensibly Speaking podcast on Scientology training. I believe it was Jenna Miscavige Hill who said that the fastidiousness of study tech ruined her pleasure of reading for life. I certainly can imagine why. 
Referring to dictionaries for definitions of words is essential, but the understanding of words can also come from inference and context of a sentence. That is also a valuable skill to develop, but seems completely neglected in Scientology training. My question is, do you think this neglect affects Scientologists' abilities of conceptual and figurative thought? Ultimately, perhaps, critical thought? Hey, thanks for the question, Isabel. Um, it's a good, good point you were making there. Um, as far as, critical, as far as critical thought or th uh, how Scientologists think, um, it's interesting because when you clear a word according to the way that I described, when you define it and you know, make up sentences, do all the stuff that, you, that you're supposed to do, Hubbard says you're supposed to have a full conceptual understanding, quote unquote, of that word. He, Hubbard talked about thinking in concepts rather than thinking in words or pictures. And he thought that that was a more ideal state of thinking and being, is that people wouldn't have to think slowly and literally, is how he thought about it, when you were thinking in pictures or words, like actually thinking the words or seeing the words, you know, presented before you and when you, when you, you know, in the mental theater of your mind. So uh, Hubbard ran into all of this kind of thinking when he was, you know, doing Dianetics on people back in the 50s. I mean, there was a real well of research data there, you know. It's just that it was so <laughs> not used for research. But there really was a fantastic, you know, well of information there. And from that, Hubbard drew some conclusions that people think pretty oddly in a number of ways. And, you know, in some ways he's right. Uh, Hubbard was one of the people thinking pretty oddly. So conceptual thinking became the sort of knee plus ultra for him of how to go about thinking and learning things. So that's what Scientologists, the reason I'm talking about all this is because that's what Scientologists think about their thinking, is they think that because they're applying this word clearing and the other pieces of study technology to how they learn things, they're not only learning it faster and easier than the rest of the world, maybe not easier all the time because of all the time in the dictionaries and the demo kits and all the rest of it, so really not easier, but after you get into the groove of it and get going, you actually do pick up the pace. And after clearing all these words over and over and over again, I have to say there's no disadvantage to doing that. There is only good in coming that comes from being a more literate person. I, I can't think of any, any, you know, damaging repercussions of that. Uh, but again, like I mentioned in the podcast, Scientology always takes things to 11. So any benefit is crushed by all the authoritarian nonsense. But if you take all that away and you just use dictionaries and look up words and clear them up and really make sure you understand what you're, you know, what you're reading, um, there's nothing, you know, like I said, there's nothing really wrong with that. Um, Scientologists, though can be fooled by this technology. They can think, they can become arrogant, or they can become, like, get in this frame of mind where this is all they need in order to learn something. And, and there are cases where that's, these are not the adequate tools to get the job done. Um, you know, you could have other situations coming up that could impinge on or prevent learning. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise comes in to Scientology and he claims he's dyslexic. I don't know if he technically was or not. He says he was, and that by applying study tech, so magically he could read well again. Well, good for Tom Cruise. And if that's all true, then great. But that's not how you cure dyslexia. 
So, you know, if there were, I mean, because if, if that was all there was needed to do it, then we wouldn't have dyslexia anymore because everybody who had it would just be clearing up their words, right? So that is a real learning problem. Uh, there are other mental issues that people have or psychological or physical issues uh, that prevent a person from being able to inflow information, duplicate it, understand it, and repeat it back. And study tech is not anywhere close to sufficient uh, as a body of, of tools, as a toolkit to use to overcome that. So you'll get so this arrogance on the part of Scientologists about their ability to learn and study can become problematic when you're trying to teach them something new that they think they already know. I mean, all the things that you run into with anybody in any situation anyway, right? Um, it's just, it's just that you'll probably have the, the chances of those kind of problems coming up or being a barrier to teaching a Scientologist something are greater than the rest of the population because of that uh, presumed knowledge that they have uh, and, and certainty that that's all that they need. That's the thing that actually prevents them from learning new stuff is this absolute certainty that L. Ron Hubbard had all the answers and no one else can teach them anything other than Hubbard. So, uh, so there you go. DA. In an interview involving Aaron Smith Levin, it was discussed that John Travolta, who has been a prominent Scientologist for 40 years, has never been allowed onto OT7. Couple questions. Is there any other plausible explanation for this besides the gay thing? Also, why OT7 and not OT3, etc.? Hey, thanks for the question. I didn't happen to see that interview, but I'm, I'm just going to answer your question uh, as presented. Um, so first off, you asked about any other possible or plausible explanations. Yeah, David Miscavige doesn't want him to. Um, now, I don't know for sure that that's the case, but I do know that David Miscavige was furious with John Travolta over the bad uh, audience reception and feedback on Battlefield Earth. David Miscavige was watching the dailies, heavily involved in, you know, overseeing the, the, the production from, a, from an outside view. He wasn't on set. He wasn't the director of the movie. I'm not implying anything like that. I'm saying that he knew about the product well before the rest of us did. And he saw what it was going to look like. And he, and he was very rave about it. And he was telling everybody it was going to be the best movie ever. It was going to blow everybody away, right? That's all according to Mark Headley. So, you know, Battlefield Earth comes out. We all have to go see it. As I've said before, we were told, we were, we were given money as Sea Org members to go, you know, watch it over and over and over again. And it bombed. I mean, bombed hard. And it, I mean, it won golden raspberries for how bad it was. It's awful. I've done a whole movie review of it. So, so that happens and John Travolta's name is suddenly mud. Right now, this didn't filter down to us, you know, low-life peasants down in management or at the lower levels of Scientology. But apparently, up there, where uh, you know where Miscavige uh, breathes the you know the refined air, uh, they <laughs> they just you know it was not good, man. And and uh, and David Miscavige was just pissed off, and he directed his ire at John Travolta. What kind of consequences there were for that, how much he actually said to John directly, I have no idea. And probably nobody else does except David Miscavige and John Travolta. 
and, you know, I don't know, probably Shelly, because she was still around back then. Uh, so, um, that's one possible explanation for it. Um, the gay thing is a thing. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a big thing in Scientology. It's not a little thing. And maybe that, maybe somehow, you know, JT did the OT levels, the beginning OT levels, I believe, back in the 80s and, and 90s. So that was a long time ago. I, now, I could be wrong about that, but I was under the impression that he was an OT um, back when he was, um, back in the 80s and 90s. So him getting onto OT7, when you start a new OT level, there's a thing called OT eligibility that you have to do. And I believe I've discussed this before, but it's basically a very long and extensive security check. And they are going to check over every part of your life. I mean, it's long. I mean, it's like 70 questions or something. It's extensive. Now, a lot of the questions are kind of ridiculous. I mean, do you work for the FBI, CIA, or any other intelligence agency, for example? Obviously, John Travolta doesn't, you know, most people don't. The question just, you know, just FNs. It's not, it's not a question you have to take up. But there's lots of questions about all kinds of parts of your life that probably do come up for most people. And uh, John Travolta is no exception. When he goes into session, he's not a celebrity. He's just another pre-clear uh, or clear. So, uh, you know, or OT. So he goes in and they do the OT eligibility on him. And then they say, well, you did this and this and this. So you're going to have to make up for that stuff. You know, and this is anybody, right? Now, celebrities probably have very different things they have to do as far as making amends for stuff. Um, so that could have included public appearances or, you know, promoting Scientology on public media or who knows what kind of demands would have been made of John Travolta. Maybe he's still working on that program because the gay thing and the black PR, the bad PR, bad repute on Scientology because of John Travolta's gay thing and it coming out in the press the way that it has, Right? People are going to connect that with Scientology, just like you are here by asking me this question. And uh, David Miscavige hates that, hates that kind of crap, right? So does Osa. So they're going to penalize John Travolta for that by not allowing him to go on the OT levels until they deem that they aren't pissed at him anymore. It's kind of how that works. So, yeah, it does, you know, it's not just money that gets you up the bridge. You have to play ball. And, if you ha and you have to stay in the good graces of the people who matter. And David Miscavige is definitely a person that matters. So that's my answer. Jan, can I ask what the Scientologists think of us poor peasants who can't afford their courses? Are we doomed? They can't fully clear the planet, can they? And if I could beg a twofer, why the need for auditing after people have gone clear? Okay, Jan, um, so yeah, this is a twofer. I'll, I'll throw some quick answers out on this one because I've actually answered both of these questions before. So please do go back and check out the extensive array of answers on my channel. Uh, they are there for you. Um, so, okay, people in Scientology think of WOGS. That is the term that they use. And yes, I'm aware that that is an extremely uh, discriminatory and derogatory term uh, in some circles. I'm only using it and saying it because that is the word Scientologists use by recommendation of L. Ron Hubbard to talk about people who are not Scientologists in the same way that muggles are people without magic in the world of Harry Potter. 
Uh, and in fact, when I was a Scientologist, near the last 10, 12 years or so that I was in, after Harry Potter came out, I got really sick of the word wog. I didn't like it. I didn't know how derogatory it was, but I, um, but I just didn't like the word. So I started calling everybody muggles. <laughs> And everybody in Scientology that I ever met loved that. You know, it was a cute little joke. Because uh, uh, that, that I was able to fly under the radar with because it wasn't derogatory towards Scientology, right? It was still kind of derogatory towards the, the wogs, the, the non-Scientologists. Uh, they're the people without the magic, right? So, all right. Um, so that's kind of how we think about them, though, is, is that as a Scientologist, we thought that the people of the world at large need to be saved from themselves. They don't even realize the problems and difficulties that they're having are all because of their reactive mind. Uh, and as you find out when you get on the OT levels, it's also due to their body thetans. I didn't know that when I was in. The reactive mind was the big bad guy. Uh, as far as I was concerned, and um, and it's only if they become truly evil by dramatizing their evil intentions and fighting Scientology that we have to actually be overt and do something about them. Otherwise, we try to disseminate, let sh you know, share the good news, proselytize, get them in one at a time. It's a numbers game, and it's one by one by one, and let's get them in here, and let's help them out, and let's salvage them. And somehow through that uh, process, we will eventually get to everybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that was uh, kind of the idea on that. And yeah, everybody is doomed until they uh, get into Scientology and get up the bridge. That is uh, definitely the view of people in Scientology. Not doomed to hell. You're doomed to hell on earth. You're doomed to be stuck here on this planet, in this condition, in this crappy life. You know, with these crappy bodies, that's doom enough. And then as far as why people get auditing after they go clear, it's because they have body thetans. And, um, and Hubbard didn't know about that until after 1967. And then it was all confidential because it would re-stimulate people and make them crazy and potentially kill them. And, uh, you know, it was all this harmful, dangerous stuff. So they couldn't really talk about to anybody uh, at the lower levels of Scientology what's on the OT levels. So it's this great big mystery. You know, I was stuck to that mystery for 27 years. I wanted to know what is on those levels, you know? And <laughs> after I got out, I found out, you know, and that's just a bunch of crap. Um, but that, the, the auditing that you do after you go clear is addressed to, you know, uh, these body thetans, basically. I mean, OT1 and OT2 are not. Those are those deal with another thing, and uh, we don't have to get into that right now. It's just stuff, little stuff about you that needs to kind of get out of the way so that you can deal with the body thetans is probably the easiest way for me to explain it. And body thetans, of course, if you don't know about that, I, you know, check out my other episodes on it because I have really gone into a lot of detail about all that. So, um, so that's already been uh, well-covered territory. But thank you very much for asking, and I hope these questions, these answers are, are good for you. Gern Blonston. Hi, Chris. I really like the movie The Master. There's one thing about the comparison to Scientology that doesn't make sense to me. Scientology is supposed to be about making the able more able. Freddie Quill doesn't seem able at all. He has severe anger issues and seems mentally disturbed. Would Hubbard have really put so much effort into making someone like Quill into a Scientologist? Okay, good question. Uh, the Master, man, great movie. And pure, 100% from beginning to end, pure Scientology. 
I, it's a total joke and farce that that movie is not about Scientology. That is all that movie is about. Um, but it's just a vehicle. Scientology was just a vehicle t for uh, Paul Thomas Anderson to, to use to, ex to go down the road of exploring codependency and a, and a master-servant uh, guru-student, you know, follower, leader-follower relationship. That's the, those are the dynamics that Paul Thomas Anderson says he was interested in exploring, and he used Scientology for that. Um, and it is the best, most well-researched uh, film out there, piece of art, fiction, work, whatever you want to call it, about Scientology that has ever been done. Extremely insightful writing. There's a lot going on in that movie. Someday I'm going to have to do a video, full video review of it and, and really break it all down. Um, probably do that for my podcast one of these weeks. So as far as Freddie Quill goes and, and Hubbard taking on somebody like that, that wasn't just Paul Thomas Anderson's imagination. In the 1950s, some people like that were the kind of people to show up at the churches of Scientology. And um, Hubbard was used to dealing with all kinds and sorts of people. I mean, he was a well-traveled man. You can say all kinds of things about the guy, and, you know, I certainly have. But, um, but you know, how to get along with other people um, and, and even rough people and disturbed people, I mean, that was something Hubbard had some experience with. Um, of course, he, you know, didn't have their best interests at heart when he was dealing with them. And I think that was also one of the things that was shown in the movie is how he appeared to have compassion, empathy, and understanding. But really, he was using Freddie Quill as much as Freddie Quill was trying to use him. You know, that's part of that relationship. Um, Hubbard would take advantage of individuals like that to use them to work for the organization. Freddie Quill was not a paying public for Scientology, right? He was not, he was not paying, um, I forgot the guy's name, the, the head character's uh, name, but he wasn't paying the organization for services. He was working for the organization. He was out passing out promo and trying to get people to come in and uh, basically being a lapdog for anything that, um, that the guy needed. I, I, his name is right on the tip of my tongue, and I'm not getting it. I'm sure I'll have five people tell me what it was in the comments. Uh, it's okay, guys. I'll look it up. <laughs> anyway, um, that is how Hubbard would take advantage of those kind of people, okay? So he could use them as workers and put them into his organizations and make them work and do Scientology, get some, get some of the benefits of auditing and training, which you saw him get in the film. Um, and the, uh, the influence that this guy was having on him and he was having, you know, back on the, on the leader. Larry B. Being a never-in, I look at all the Scientology stuff in the right Gibney way. In as much as the belief itself is irrelevant, but the why we believe is the real question. With that being said, I stumbled upon an actual lecture from Hubbard on YouTube with information that Scientologists deem confidential. Excited about actually hearing some primary source materials, I listened and have two questions. A, is this legit? If so, how come they are not taken down? Don't they charge thousands of dollars for these materials? B, listening to these tapes, I was really taken aback by just how meandering and pointless Hubbard sounds. I was expecting the charisma that has been attributed to him to come across, but it didn't to me. 
He sounds like a guy talking off the top of his head about something kind of ridiculous. Now, if you were in the room with the guy live, then I can understand because it could be chalked up to a you-had-to-be-there type situation. But most of the people I hear talking about their experiences were mature or your young adults, while Hubbard was in hiding or dead and would never have met him, including yourself. What was your reaction when you listened to these tapes for the first time? Okay, thanks for the question. Yes, the lectures you linked to are legit. That was L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, and, and ironically, that, that link doesn't work anymore. That video was taken down because of numerous uh, third-party copyright infringement uh, notices, is what it said when I went to the link today. Um, but I knew what the lecture was, and I, you know, and I, uh, I was able to, to see that. Uh, as far as your uh, second question... Let me, let me turn this a little bit, okay? Because I get asked this stuff all the time, right? Like, I, I, I get from what you're asking me, like, you listen to Hubbard talking, and you're like, dude, what the hell? This guy sounds like he's meandering. It's going on and on. He's, he, he, this is ridiculous. There's no charisma. There's no nothing. Well, for you, there isn't. And it totally makes sense that there isn't because you've been exposed to a ton of anti-Scientology material that is that is created a view already in your mind that Scientology completely sucks and that L. Ron Hubbard is full of it. So even if you attempt to put that aside and objectively listen to what he's saying, you're still going to have this very skewed bias. I, coming into Scientology as a second gen, having been raised in it since I was four, had the exact opposite bias. People mostly come into Scientology through friends and family. So they come into an organization for the first time, having already been talked to, having it, it's been presented a particular way, they've been told to have certain expectations, they've been told how brilliant L. Ron Hubbard is, they have been told that he's a genius, brilliant, amazing, uh, better scientist than most scientists. Like, there's a lot of ways that people, that Scientologists describe L. Ron Hubbard. Charismatic is not a word they usually use. Us critics usually actually use that word more often than Scientologists do. Um, they use these other, you know, much more glowing, I mean, way bigger words. I mean, sure, they, they wouldn't argue with the word charismatic. It's just not the word that really comes to mind so much as genius, super genius, amazing man, my, you know, teacher, the best philosopher who's ever lived. I mean, it's, it's every, you know, amazing hyperbole thing you can say. They'll say, but here's the point, by saying, by describing a person, with all of those attributes. Maybe they build them up to be too much. They try to tone it down. They try to keep it chill when they're talking to somebody newly. But just using a, one or two of those words even sets up things, expectations and ideas in a person's mind who has no idea about any of this, right? Not familiar with Lawrence Wright or Alex Gibney or Leah's show or my work or anybody else's work. Like, let's say you had somebody out there who really didn't know anything about it. And a friend or a family member, a in other words, somebody they trust, tells them, this guy has found the answers, man, or whatever they say. The guy who doesn't know anything goes, really? Huh. 
you know, and in his brain is all firing off hopes, ambitions, ideas, desires, ideals, like things he wants to accomplish and or she wants to accomplish uh, in their life. And here's a potential person out there who might have the answers they're looking for. Yes, they could come in and have a skeptical attitude about it, but they're also going to have these little hopes and dreams and desires there. That's, otherwise, they wouldn't show up, right? Nobody walks into a Scientology organization uh, in this scenario that I'm presenting here with uh, the idea that they're going to take the organization down or they're going to prove Hubbard wrong or something like that. That's, you wouldn't bring somebody like that in. You'd be like, oh, now, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about Scientology anymore, right? But if you get somebody a little excited about it, they are in this frame of mind I'm describing. So they go in and they start listening to Hubbard or they watch him on a film or in an interview because he's in the Tony Hitchman um, interview that he does uh, from the 1960s, the Introduction to Scientology video, he comes across as, you know, well-traveled, a very smart, brilliant man, um, very, you know, kind of, kind of a jovial sort of talker, I guess. So I mean, jovial is too strong a word, but he comes across fairly well to somebody who doesn't know anything about him. That's the important part here, okay? Um, so obviously I'm talking about biases here. And, uh, and the reason I'm talking about this is because your question, you know, you, you listened and you, and you went, man, this doesn't make any sense. This is crap. I can't understand how anybody would ever fall for this. Good. <laughs> that's that's not a. I'm not. I'm not criticizing that response to the lecture. I'm saying that if you don't understand how anybody else wouldn't have that same reaction you had, that's what all this bias talk is about. Okay, you went in there with already knowing it was bullshit. So it just he just confirmed for you that it was bullshit. If somebody comes in there thinking it's going to be the greatest thing they've ever heard and it's going to help them in their life they're going to find something in what he's saying that's going to help them. That's how it works, you know. Now, when he's, now <laughs> also keep in mind, the second half of my answer here is that you were listening to high-level information. So all of that, everything I was just talking about was sort of on the introductory side. But now let's take that same person who came in, was mildly helped by L. Ron Hubbard in some fashion or by his methods or guidelines or techniques, goes all in, becomes a Scientologist, drinks all the Kool-Aid, goes on to the places where you're going to now hear the stuff you, you listen to, the, the real high-level confidential stuff. Now he's got a thousand more biases in place to keep him there. And what... He, <laughs> you know, so it's almost a matter of what he's hearing Hubbard talk about on these lectures, the same lectures you listened to when you were hearing them. It's night and day. It's black and white. It's two different things. He's hearing a whole different thing from what you're hearing. You're literally listening to two different lectures because of the mindset, uh, the difference between those two things, okay? I'm pretty sure I made my point. I, I know I go on and on, and I tried, I'm trying to you know, uh, not do that and, and failing. But I think I got my point across on this. If you have any other uh, comments about that, about my answer to your question or anything, feel free to contact me. But I think that's what's actually going on with your question. And I think that's the answer to your question. And I hope that comes across that way. 
Okay, everybody, thanks very much for coming around and listening and watching. Again, come back next week, 10 o'clock a.m., Sunday morning, a one week from today, um, that this is posting. I will be here live with my wife and our cat. Probably will make an appearance. I can't promise because he's just finicky. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Uh, please leave any questions, comments, or feedback, good, bad, or sideways, in the comment section below in response to uh, this video here. I love seeing your guys' feedback. And if you're going to criticize my work, at least please be a little constructive about it. All right. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.